Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to TalkScript. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today my co-hosts, Nick Nisi. Hello. Paul Shannon. Hey, all. And the man we've all come to know and love. Neil Roberts. Uh, It's an honor just to be nominated. It's an honor to have you. All right. Today, we are going to talk about the tools that we love. We wanted to do an episode kind of following on the heels of everybody's favorite holiday, uh, Valentine's Day. My wife and I, we don't actually celebrate Valentine's Day. We wait until the anniversary of our engagement to celebrate, which is at the end of the month on the 29th. Did you ask her out on the 29th so you would only have to celebrate the anniversary every four years? That wasn't my intention, but... Uh, it's worked out. Kind of, kind of worked <laughs> out that way. <laughs> no. We, anyway, kind of the rage right now is to, to compile a list of all the things that you use and disseminate that to different people. We were looking at a blog post by uh, Dave Geddes. Who does uh, service workies, if you've ever tried that out. It's like a, a game to learn service workers. It's really good. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Service workers are one of those things that kind of baffle my mind. Server workers, those are those things that you implement, and then it never lets you refresh your page the way you want it to. <laughs> if you've made <laughs> you your page wrong, <laughs> if you made your page so slow that it's like really hurting your users, just leave it like that, but in the service worker. In the server, yeah, exactly. There's also the the uses tech webpage. It collects lists of of things that people use and. It's always neat to go there and see who's using them. But today we're going to add our voice to the mix and talk about the things that we love. That's true. Paul, give us, give us some things that you like, that you love. So one of my favorite things lately is VS Code has like this ability to do remote development. And so I'm a Windows user in part because a lot of our users are Windows users and they're really valuable for open source projects because everybody is like trendy and on Macs and being too cool for school. But like I use Windows and one of the things that Windows has now is WSL, which is Windows subsystem for Linux. So you can run essentially basically Linux in a VM on Windows and it's it's pretty neat actually. So you can switch between Windows and Linux, especially at the command line without having a whole bunch of of static. But one of the problems is, is since you're essentially running in a VM, your IDE has to kind of connect to that VM in some way in order to edit the files. So there's a lot of like nasty ways you can do that. But VS Code has come up with this remote development environment that has made it actually pretty smooth. And so what I like about it is it has separated the client and server models of like the functionality of VS Code versus the front end of VS Code. And it allows you to connect to a remote server over SSH, for instance, and then you can just run the server side or the backend of VS Code and do your builds and everything. And then it works exactly like VS Code on the front. Like, So you're using VS Code and you open up a terminal window and it opens up immediately, not in your local system, but whatever remote system you're connected to. So it's like a really sweet way of, of developing. And so I have a a server at home that runs like a whole bunch of stuff around the house, like Plex and has some local development stuff and has Docker running on it and everything. And I just updated that to like an i5 9400 chip and like 64 gigs of RAM. And so I could run all of my builds on that machine and take a essentially zero resources on my machine. And it keeps my development running or my environment running quickly while all my builds run even faster over there. Do you experience any kind of lag with that, like in actual development? I haven't really yet. In fact, I have one of the Docker containers I have is a open VPN running on a Docker container. And so I've connected over VPN to these remote systems and it works just essentially like SSH. Now I'm in a relatively big city. I'm in Phoenix, so I'm not in like a rural area at all. 
and that might matter quite a bit. <laughs> but so far, the experience has been pretty good. The only like slight differences is if you keep VS Code open, you close your lid and open back up, and you disconnect, you have to reestablish your, your terminal stuff. So whatever's running in your terminal at the time has to be restarted. So if you're running a script, like a watch script, you have to restart that perhaps. Things like that. There's small things that are trade-offs, but I mean, to be able to do, run a build on a massive system that's running full Linux versus you know my laptop, which is has a quarter of the memory and is running a mobile chip, is like pretty much worth it. It seems like the uh, the remote development people need to learn about Tmux and Mosh. <laughs> <laughs> that seems really cool. <clears throat> that seems really cool. Yeah, getting closer to Vim. I I do. I don't like setting it up. That's why you're learning all files. of the. Yeah, I'd still have to learn all of the the crazy yeah, stuff. No, that's fair. No, I like VS Code is is an amazing editor, and anybody that that is coming to like development, if if they're not somebody that's been doing Vim or Linux or console development for a long time, the first tool I give them is is VS Code. The debugging experience in VS Code, like being able to hook right into Chrome. Is amazing. This remote development thing that you're talking about sounds fantastic. Yeah. You have like a little tab up here on the left side, and it lists all your environments that are in your S, uh, SSH config file. So you have access to all of those, and you can install your server and all your plugins remotely on that device. You can automatically forward ports. So there's like a little port forward. So, like when I'm working on a local server thing, I just say, like, oh, I want port 7,000 or 8,000 on my local machine and it just port forwards it for you. You don't have to like worry about SSH port forwarding or any of that. It's just like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. So I have a server that's running full on Ubuntu. Yeah. So it's like Ubuntu, whatever, 18 or 16. And in order to connect, all you need is an SSH credential. Mm. And so it connects over SSH and then it installs like a kernel of VS code over there. And then you can install plugins over there as well. Any kind of plugins need to run on the remote system and then it runs those plugins and then reports back to vs code in which it's where it's displaying so it's a it's a real client server setup anybody who's set up jenkins with support systems where you know jenkins you have a jenkins system that's running a bunch of support systems has experienced this like jenkins will send a kernel over ssh that runs your builds essentially and reports back to jenkins so it's the same type of client server model that's pretty cool yeah yeah, it works with Docker, apparently. You know, I've used it extensively now for WSL and a remote server, and it's been pretty fantastic, even over OpenVPN. I haven't done it as much in Docker containers, but so far it's been smooth. And so I can imagine, I can imagine like, oh, I need to develop Ruby, and I don't want to install everything globally, so I'm going to run in a Ruby Docker container using VS Code. Nice. Yeah, I really like that you... Go out of your way to get off of Windows to stay on Windows. It's very cool. <laughs> w, WSL2 is coming. Like Windows is becoming more and more just like a big virtual machine. And that are, you know, so eventually you're just going to run Windows on whatever virtual machine is right. and run Ubuntu. They just, and they just moved VMware into the kernel. Well, it's like, it's like recreating a windowing environment using the command line. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I don't get that. Oh, boy. So on the on the the web development front, anybody else? Yeah, I want to recommend that y'all ditch Chrome and try out the Firefox developer tools again. If you haven't been using them lately, they're phenomenal. I stopped using them for a while. I don't know why. And I was using Chrome Canary for most of my development. And I do like, you know, that I have the dev tools that, that run for Node and for, for the browser all in there. But... Then I've been on this kick to kick Google out of my life, and I've been using Firefox more and more. And the developer tools, specifically when it comes to like CSS and working with Grid or Flexbox, like they're just so good. And they look nice. They work great. And yeah, I would just recommend trying them again because they are, they're nice. Yeah, they continually improve each mm -hmm. release, which has been really nice. I've been using Firefox about a year now. I went back. Mostly for the thing that I like about Firefox is the container support. If you haven't tried Firefox lately, they have this thing, it's called containers. And what it does is it, it makes these separate 
environments for your browser to run in, essentially, that never the twain shall meet. So I've got a Facebook container, I've got uh, a work container, a personal container, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't share cookies between them, but it remembers like saved passwords and that sort of stuff between the different containers. So it's not like a, a private session where as soon as you close the private session, it wipes everything. It remembers history for each container. It's really nice, especially for like Facebook, Twitter, any of those like social media sites. I know a lot of you have dumped Facebook. I'm an old guy, so I haven't. I also keep Facebook for my parents. Yeah. But what the container does is anytime I even type facebook.com, even into the normal container tabs, it'll close that tab and launch Facebook in the new container. So it never even opens Facebook in my personal or work container. It just knows facebook.com goes to the Facebook container. And so then like Amazon doesn't have access to my friends list or whatever, you know, however, any of that stuff works. I'm supposed to know because I'm a tech guy. I don't know how any of that tracking stuff works. How are you going to get advertised for things on Amazon that you and your wife were talking about last night in private? Well, you know, it's great that I don't have an Amazon Echo anywhere in the house. And I turn off Hey Siri because I'm a little paranoid about the kind of that stuff. But the Firefox containers is just great. Yeah. Firefox has been fantastic. Yeah. They've done some great stuff. If you haven't checked out Firefox, go download it today. And, tr- and try it out for like a week or two. And it's not a Chromium browser. Yeah. Container support was, oh gosh. Yeah, uh, containers has been added, I think, to Android, like the syncing of containers. Now, I don't know about iOS because- No, iOS, iOS is a mess. you have to have a WebKit as your browser. Yeah, but I think Firefox is on iOS. It's just a WebKit wrap. So I've got the Firefox browser on my on my iPhone and my iPad. And so like you can sync tabs across. I sync all my history- I use LastPass for my password stuff. So like I don't save my passwords in my Firefox stuff just because I've got a different solution for that. But I've got all my, my history, my tabs. If I've got something open on my computer and I walk away and I'm like, oh crap, what was I just looking at? I can pull it up on my phone because it all just syncs across. It doesn't have the container support on my phone or iPad. So that stinks a little bit. I think it's brand new. And since you mentioned LastPass, have you picked up any of the other Firefox tools, like the privacy tools? Because they just released a VPN. And as far as I understand, they just released the VPN for Android. I haven't tried the VPN. It's Android only right now. It's Android only? I thought they had it for Android and desktop now. Oh, maybe. But but mobile-wise, it's not for iOS yet. Oh, yeah. I don't care about that. That's okay. I, we, we know you don't. <laughs> so I haven't picked up the VPN and tried it. There's Firefox Monitor. I forget how it works, but basically you log into it and then it knows what accounts you have or whatever. And then it checks for, I forget what site it is, but it checks a certain site for you pretty regularly to see if there's been any password breaches. Have I been pwned? Yeah, have I been pwned? Yeah. So it integrates with that and notifies you in your browser if you've been pwned. So that's pretty slick. Firefox has got some great tools right now. They have a heavy focus on privacy too, which is definitely worth looking into. Like they feel like a good actor again in the community again, not that Firefox or Mozilla wasn't, but no, 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 I don't think they ever were, but, but it's like with certain social media sites and certain search engines kind of being caught selling our information to to people, it's kind of nice to have somebody on our side. And I feel like Firefox is, is on our side is on the user's side. We'll see if that holds up. But for now, man, the tools they give are great. All right. Next tool, right? (laughs) Well, the reason I have this next is because we were talking about containers. This is kind of what one of the approaches that I use to kind of trying to segment out my browsing. So there's two tools that create basically bespoke instances of Chrome where I use some of them for specific websites. You can run it in like single tab or multi-tab setups, pretty much both of the tools, where I don't have them logged into any of my Chrome persons, I guess is what they're called. So like for my budgeting tool, I have that. It's its own app. I have the RSS reader that I have. I made that into its own app. Instapaper, I made that into its own app, stuff like that. 
But then I kind of have two big ones that I use, which is I have like a personal Chrome and that's signed into my personal account. And then I have a SitePen Chrome, which is SitePen related stuff. And then even with that, I use, it's in the article I posted, but there's an, a tool called Workona that lets me group tabs by what activity I'm doing. So I have like my client project running in one and then I have SitePen in another. So like even, even signed in a SitePen, I have like two different workspaces that I work in. So really, like, the Google document stuff is just the worst offender of, of all of this. With You don't have access to this. Maybe it's in another account. And I'm like, can't you figure that out? Like, I'm signed into both. That's kind of frustrating. And then you have, like, that Wakona thing I talked about. That can suspend tabs, which is neat. But then Wavebox is kind of specifically built to deal with suspending tabs, where you install different websites as, like, apps on the side. And you can say some should stay around permanently, some should hide. You can sign in with your two different Google Drive accounts to have them completely separated. I have Discord, I have Telegram, I have WhatsApp, like the different chat apps that I use going through Wavebox instead of running the apps individually because I don't use them that often. But I get notifications if anyone talks to me on any of those services. So that's really nice. And they just suspend when I'm not using them. Sounds like you need a Chromebook, Neil. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, but this is really cool because it, it's like so many good apps are web apps these days. Yeah, you can run Slack in it if you Yeah, can, exactly. Yeah. And this is just a way to kind of consolidate that down and be able to control privacy and control accounts being logged in, what, what accounts are actually logged in for what services, et cetera. So it's really cool being able to consolidate all of this down into a, a single app. Take all of these web apps and make it an app that does exactly what you want. Yeah. When you were initially talking about it, it it almost sounded like an app I used to use was called Fluid, and it would make individual Safari containers, right? But then when, when Firefox came out with the container support, I dropped Fluid, and now I just have Firefox do that for me. But this, this sounds pretty, pretty similar, and yeah, it's definitely something that I've used before. So then when you click on a link, how do you decide where that link should go? So like if I click something that's specifically for my work container or whatever. Firefox can figure that out and open it in my work container. If you've got separate apps, how do you do that? Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm outside of a browser, there's an app called Choosy, and it pops up a little circle. Well, it usually pops up a little circle. So if I click on something like from my email program, it'll pop up a little circle and it'll say, where do you want to load this? I have mine with specific overrides where if it has the word site pen in it anywhere, it'll automatically open in my site pen Chrome instance. So I don't even have to click anything. But if I hold command down when I click it, then it'll override that and ask me. Likewise, if I hold command down on the picker, it'll go to my personal. And then they have an extension that you can install in like your browser to where I think when you hold command down, it'll pop up that spinner for every link you click. So you can swap between browsers. I have that turned off. I don't trust things messing with my web pages to begin with, especially like rewriting links. But also, like, I kind of, I don't need to hop between stuff a lot. If I do, I just copy the link and, and switch browsers. Yeah, Choosy is Choosy's super cool. When I was using Fluid, I would have, I had a, a SitePen app where I would, I'd have Red Mine running in there. You're right with the, with the Google Docs thing, because everything's docs.google.com. Even if you're using a, apps, yeah. Apps even business. if you're using Google Apps. So that's, that was a little iffy, but that's where the chooser comes up. So if you're using Google Apps from business, though, you can set your custom domain names, and then it will go into the right container. Do we have that? Why don't we have that? We don't. I do. <laughs> just to let you know. Weightbox looks cool. I was just looking at it, and it has support for Windows, Linux, and I guess Mac. Whoever uses that. Yeah, who uses I don't know. No developers. <laughs> it reminds me of VNC, you know, like a, a remote window in a way except it's like encapsulated all this. So it would almost be neat if, you know, there was something that genericized everything just flat. I don't know, maybe maybe web apps and things like that are are the the solution to that, but does it stay on the latest Chrome version all the time, Neil? Yeah. So Epichrome is interesting because it seems to be better engineered, but it also seems to not be very well maintained. Whereas coherence is very well maintained, but doesn't seem to be of high quality. So it's a weird trade-off where if Epichrome ever gets updated, I'm going to just start using that. Right now, I kind of lean on coherence. So the reason I mentioned that is because in one of the latest updates, they said that they support updating 
those stay updated with the latest versions of Chrome. So ho- however things get linked out and stuff like that. In Coherence, I create them with that profile. So I say, like, I want you to create this using one of my Google Chrome profiles or persons, whatever they call them. So it, like, creates it started with just that profile. It doesn't include the other ones that I've created. So it's kind of neat. Nice. So do we have any other browser tools since we're kind of on that topic of browsers slash apps related to browsers? So I like having a page ruler. And so I still do my debugging in Chrome a lot. I like Firefox tools, but I have a a no user in Chrome. Like I'm not signed in and I have my browser stack plugin installed and I have this page ruler redux. So I have page ruler redux for Chrome and I really like it because it's, it's something that makes it pretty easy to measure. So a lot of times if you have like a before or after pseudo elements and things like that, it gets a little dicey to measure those or depending on how your positioning is set up, it gets dicey to measure. So it, it allows you to kind of put this this page ruler, basically lines like you would get in a Photoshop or an Affinity Designer or something like that on the page so you can measure distances between two things. And it's come in handy. So when my design guy says like, oh, I need eight pixels of space between this and this is a some like pseudo element tagged icon and like an actual div with text in it, I can actually measure that in a sane way and not drive myself crazy. I'll second your suggestion of having a separate browser for a dev environment. I like not having like local host show up in my personal browser history. I like not having to sift through all the Reddit threads that I've gone through as I'm developing. So I do the same thing. I develop in Chrome. It isolates your plugins too. Yeah. And, and then and then I don't have to have a whole bunch of developer plugins on my personal browser. And I can have all that stuff over there on the dev on the dev side. And then I don't have my personal plugins over on my dev stuff. One thing to watch out for with that is if you're working on like a more public app, if you don't test in a browser that has ad blockers turned on, you might be blocking like social buttons and things like that. But there are real advantages to that. The other real main reason that I like using a separate browser or you could use Chrome and Chrome Canary, or I use Firefox and then Firefox Dev Tool or Firefox Developer Edition. And it just makes it easier to command tab to the right browser. The page ruler you're saying, is that automatic or how does that work? Do you like, is it just measuring or is it actually sensing DOM elements? It's super basic. It doesn't sense DOM elements. You just kind of drag and drop it. I mean, if the DOM elements were a good indication of where things started and stopped, you could just use the built-in browser elements browser to do highlights and figure it out from there a lot of times. But in those cases where it's not obvious, having a page ruler is nice to, to just kind of measure things. Like if you have an SVG file and they're like, oh, I want 20 pixels between this text and this SVG image. And then your SVG image has blank pixels, you know, it's empty area or transparent pixels or whatever you want to call it. Like you can actually measure that with a page ruler where it, it wouldn't be effective if it had browser support the same way, I guess. I think Nick and I have been messing around with a tool called Pixel Snap, which basically records your screen and then detects boundaries between different things and tells you how far apart they are. I've heard good things about Pixel Snap. It's been really fun. It's Mac only. <laughs> I feel like I'm behind the curve with you guys. Like, I don't know about any of these. I just found that like yesterday. So it's not, okay, it's right, not exactly, so you're a day behind, <laughs> a day behind me. Well, Nick, Nick, you're the guy with 400 Vim plugins. So you try everything out. So, I mean, so with, Paul, with, with the page ruler or maybe even with pixel snaps, can you set it to different units or can you only measure? In pixel? It has a few different units. I think it has metric and imperial or freedom units. And then it has pixels as I think the basis Pixels tend to be the most important unless you're like, unless you have your printer set up or something, I guess, but <laughs> you know, well, I'm thinking like if you have your page set up in REMS, if it could measure in that. So anyway, feature request for page ruler. Anyway, cool. Nick, I know that you're kind of chopped with a bit to talk about this one. Yeah. It's called Octotree. Now, what do we do as developers most days? Develop. Try not to do work. Well, that, yeah. When you're in a browser, what is one tab that is probably open all day, every day? That's GitHub. MDN. Or MDN, yes. But we're going to talk about GitHub. GitHub is a fantastic place where your source code lives. But it's not that easy to browse the source code on GitHub if you just want to like quickly browse it. In the past, 
oftentimes I would just clone a repo so I could use NerdTree in Vim and browse it there. But there's a fantastic browser plugin called Octotree that puts a file drawer right into GitHub. And it does so much more than that. It has a dark mode if you don't want to see the light every day. And then it also, like when you're reviewing pull requests, the drawer will change to just show the files that have changed and it'll have like the plus minus numbers. So you can see exactly how much of that file has changed. And then you can use that to navigate and it'll just scroll the page to that file. So you don't have to like scroll forever to find the exact part of the the PR that you might want to review in more detail. You can just use the drawer, go find it. It's amazing. You should check it out. Now is Octotree for Mac or Windows or the desktop or Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. I think if you want to use it in Safari, you have to pay for it and be a pro user, which I am because I support the tools I like. <laughs> yes. So Octotree is super useful. I use it every day. Sometimes I forget I have it, right? And I'm just like, I'm clicking through all these things and I'm like, wait a second, I could be doing this without all these page refreshes and I could just expand the thing and then just flip back and forth. It's really useful for flipping back and forth between files. I've been doing some Swift programming lately and switching between Objective-C headers and implementation files has been way easier with Octotree because I can just click between them rather than having to go back and wait for the page to load and click it again. And I can just go back and forth between them. It's pretty nice. Should we talk about Notion? Yeah, let's let's talk about Notion. So Notion is a really cool tool. It's a note-taking app. It's browser-based, so it does have apps for for every platform, but they're effectively like Electron apps. And it's just a really cool and unique way to to take notes and to organize those notes. And it has a lot of features that typical note-taking apps don't really have, which make it really unique and makes it really stand out. What are some of those features? Yeah, yeah. So I think the one that really got to me, once I actually understood what it was, made me immediately adopt Notion as my note-taking app of choice. And that is the concept of tables and so you have the these tables that you can put into your notes and you would think, oh, my note-taking app has tables. I can do whatever with those. But these tables are really cool because every row that you create in the table is its own note. And then those notes can have tables in them and you can just go from there. But it's really cool being able to use tables to create those notes. And then you can filter on those and sort by those and add different columns. So you can have like one thing that I always create for the projects I'm on is I create like a meetings table. And then in there, I have a new row for every meeting that I have, and I can have all of the notes and their their own completely separate notes file. And I can have a list of the participants in the meeting, a date for the meeting, all of that. So it's it's really easy. And then I filter that so that I only see meetings that occurred in the last week, and then I can go find them if I need to later. But it's really cool, this this concept of databases. So it's like a note inception app. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of my favorite things that it does is if you have a table... You have like, you know, your title and then date had happened and a checkbox and all this kind of stuff. But then each row is its own page that is like a nested child of the current page. So you can like put in a little, a quick little row and then click on like the main field and it pops up and now you have a second document, right? So Nick was saying you could have like your different meetings and then you can click on one of the meetings and then you can put in a bunch of stuff about that. It's like hidden away where it doesn't show up in your main navigation, but it's there for a bunch of added detail. It's like Prezi for notes. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so what tools has this replaced for you? Since I'm not really familiar with Notion, but I know about other note-taking tools. And Nick, if you say Vim... Let me tell you about all these other Mac note-taking apps. That you're <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, is it anywhere close to like, I've used Evernote and I've used like Keep and I'm using Microsoft To-Do right now to kind of keep track of like a daily to-do list. So like, what apps has it like cleared off for you? Which ones can I clear off of my list and just switch to this one thing? So it, it does have an importer for Evernote is one thing that it touts. I haven't used that. And from the, the Reddit forums, it seems like it's not really as up to par as it should be, but it is there. And that's one way that they try and hook you in is, look, you can take everything from Evernote and just drop it in. But yeah, so you can use it as a to-do list. And there are people, there are several YouTube videos and such of people using it to implement like a full GTD system for that. I use a separate app called OmniFocus to handle my to-do list, but you can do that in there. I, I just don't like, to me, it doesn't really surface notifications and things in the way that I would want from a to-do list. 
but you can do all of that. Well, I'm going to I say I'm going to link to like there's a, a whole bunch of courses you can take that explain how to do all of the resurfacing and everything. Yeah. But the main thing I think to, to think about is, is those tables that Neil and I have been talking about. You can think of them as like databases. Like one thing that I do is when I start a new project, like a customer project, I have notes for all of that. But then I make a list of everyone who is on my team from like from SitePen. And then they each have their own individual note because they exist in a SitePen team table that exists somewhere else. And I just relate to them within that page so that then I can keep notes on comments that I would bring up in like performance, like peer review things. And those are separate. They're, they're kind of part of the project, but they, I link them out to individual. You have a Brian file. I do. I have a, I have a file on you, Brian. It might be empty right now, actually, because we haven't worked together in a while. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cool being able to just like put notes where they make sense and then link to them or have them as cells in, in other databases, like thinking about it in a relational database way for note-taking is really cool. Now it's not all great. Like the one thing that keeps making me want to, to jump away from notion is it's mobile app. Like it's just awful in almost every sense. Like it's, it takes several seconds to load up. It doesn't support things that the, the desktop app or the web app supports. And it's, it's not great. They're working on it. It's a small team and they're, they're really working hard to, to do that. So hopefully that will get better. And then they keep promising an API coming, which I think could be so cool. Being able to like use Notion as like a CMS for like blog posts that I write or like reviews on books that I, I read or listen to. And then having like my blog pull from that, from the API and be able to generate, you know, static pages based off of that. I think that would be like a really cool concept that I want to play with in the future. That sounds pretty sweet. I'm going to have to ch check that out after. Yeah. The one thing we haven't touched on with it is that one thing our places is like outliners. I was going to say that this sounds, this sounds like a mental map. You could use this as like a mental mapping tool as well. You'd have to use like the database linking to do really dynamic stuff. So every paragraph is, is like a block, right? And every item in a to-do list is a block. And you can nest them in, in each other, like the individual blocks. So you can put like a paragraph under a paragraph, right? In a tree hierarchy. And then if you can drag the parent and do a different location, you can select multiple parts, multiple blocks and move them all together. And that's part of the reason why the mobile app is not great is because it that's really hard to do in a mobile app, that kind of interaction. But the way that you can nest stuff is just amazing. I like to do board game design. And one of the ways that I use Notion is for writing board game rules, which it seems almost like it's created for. I have like a glossary table at the bottom of my rules. Whenever I use like a term, instead of writing that term in my document, I link to a row in the glossary. Like you just type the at sign and then you can reference a term in the glossary. And then when you update the title of that document in the glossary, it'll update it everywhere in the document. So it's got, it's got all sorts of ways of like linking stuff together. Like I would say that this may be, if you've ever used like personal wiki software, there was like PB wiki and a bunch of, of those kind of apps and voodoo pad. It kind of is a really neat, like personal wiki that might be a good way to wrap it up. And then with, with one click, you can share individual notes or, and every sub note like that exists on that page. And so I could create a, a link and then share it with you and you can see everything, or I can invite you in so we can collaborate on those notes together. And that's what Neil and I did for JSConf this year. We had a database of all of the, the talks that we wanted to see and who we were interviewing. And then we could put in our notes and we immediately saw them and collaborated on them before we went in to actually interview each of the speakers. That's pretty neat. Yeah, like I said, I'm going to have to check that out. So I feel like I've been kind of backing you guys up and saying things about the things you bring up, but I wanted to bring up a few tools that I use. And the thing that I, that I want to highlight about the tools that I'm, I'm going to bring up is that they, they do one thing and they do one thing well. They kind of take the Unix approach of, they've got one function and they just they do that one thing. And so the first thing that I want to bring up is Bartender. It's a Mac app. And I like a clean looking menu bar, but with, with a lot of these utilities, you've got quite a few running in the background. What Bartender does is it will hide some of those not as used apps. So some of these things that I, that I bring up in a few minutes, I've got hidden because they've got a menu bar that I'll occasionally use, but they've got other functions that I, that I don't really use. So Bartender is a big one for me because I like it clean. I think, Nick, you use Bartender as well. I do. Absolutely. You do? 
Okay. All right, cool. And you get this little three dot thing in your menu bar. You can click that and see the hidden ones. It even allows you to hide Siri and the notification if you don't use that often. I've got Siri hidden because I never use it. Another tool that I use is Moom. And what Moom does is on your Zoom, your Zoom button for Mac. If you've ever, ever wondered what the Zoom button does, I still don't know what it does. It does weird things. It depends. It depends. Yeah, exactly. What Moom does is when you mouse over the Zoom button, you get this little drop down and you can either fill the screen, you can put it to the left half, to the right half, or you can click this little dotted, this dotted line thing. And then you get a grid overlay and then you can drag from one corner of your screen to the next and it'll resize that window to that grid, which is super nice. I like having symmetric windows in corners. I'm a little obsessive about that. And then another tool that kind of goes along with Moom is Stay. So once I've got my windows positioned perfectly, I can go to Stay and save the position of that window. And what I do is I generally, when I'm working at SitePen, I've got my laptop in clamshell mode. But then when I go to church or any other place where I take my laptop, I'm not in clamshell mode. So if I've got something open, like Discord, let's say, I've got Discord open. When I go back to clamshell mode, it'll generally end up in like the middle of my screen on my 32-inch monitor. With Stay, what it does is when I plug in my monitor, Stay detects that, and then it moves Discord back to where I've saved it. So all these things that I've done with Moom are saved, and things just kind of go back to where they were. It's a pretty nice setup. Moom was one of the first plugins or dongles or whatever I bought for when I started using the Mac. Windows does something similar now. It's not quite as nice, but you can still drag to the corners and it resizes. One of the things I liked going from Windows to Mac was that all the the buttons, the red, green, yellow buttons, did the same thing for all apps. And then they changed it so the green button went full screen instead of just maximizing. And then... So, so Moom was like a breath of fresh air when it when it allowed me to like maximize things again with just a shortcut pretty easily. I use Stay as well. I plug my laptop into a dock that adds two extra monitors to it. So a lot of the time I'll save all my windows kind of at the end of the day, unplug, and then they'll go back to the way they were on my screen before I plugged it in on my laptop. Because I kind of shift between those two environments pretty often. And what's really neat about stay is that you can run an apple script uh, you can do a bunch of different things on the events where it switches between different setups and what i do with mine is i have the dock really small on the left side of my laptop screen when i'm using just my laptop and then i have it as big as possible on the bottom of one of my plugged in screens when I have it plugged into the external monitors. So I just have an Apple script that runs that doesn't just reposition my windows, it repositions my my dock as well. So I kind of have this like really cool switch over when I, when I plug into my two monitors. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. On the podcast side, there's a suite of tools that, that Nick and I both use that I thought I'd plug because we use it every week to record, and that's Audio Hijack. And Audio Hijack is exactly what it what it sounds like. It can sync anywhere into the audio system in a Mac and record or even reroute audio. It's really sweet. And it does it visually. So you've got these little blocks that you move around and you can add new blocks in or route from one block to another. And it's really slick. It makes recording the podcast super simple. You can share setups between people. So when I was... When Nick was gone the first time and I needed to record both my own audio and then the combined audio of our Skype session plus my audio, Nick just shared his setup and I was able to just import it into Audio Hijack and it worked. It was pretty slick. Nick, do you have anything to add? Yeah, it's it's a great tool. It makes it really easy to route audio from where you want it, where you have it to where you need it. And it works really well with another tool that I think you're going to bring up called Loopback. Yeah, so Loopback is a little more low-level than Audio Hijack. They're similar, but they're different. So I don't use Loopback to record the podcast, but I do use Loopback. I do a lot of stuff on Discord. I've got a group of guys online 
we hang out a lot. Anytime that a YouTube video can't be played through a bot, what I'll do is I'll use loopback to route the audio from my browser to this loopback output channel. And then I'll pipe my microphone into that and then set that as my input device on Discord. So any audio apps that I have routed into this loopback device just get piped into Discord and just go over Discord. So it's kind of the opposite of what Audio Hijack does, where you're creating these new input devices rather than creating these new output devices. And then if you buy those two, you get SoundSource for free. And SoundSource is this little toolbar app that gives you a nice little grid of all the devices that you've got going on. You can quickly switch input and output devices, and you can even control individual application volume. So it's a pretty slick app. And then I think my last little tool is this little tool that I love called Shush. And what Shush does is it sets up a global hotkey to mute your microphone. What I love about Shush is that the hotkey doesn't have to have any alphanumeric keys in it. So I've got my Shush hotkey set up to control option command. So if I hold those down, what it does is it mutes the default input device on my Mac. So I'm going to hit it. You guys couldn't hear me talking right there because I hit the the shush hotkey and it just mutes that device. The reason why I went out and found this was back in the ye olde days of SitePen, we had Skype meetings, we had Google Hangout meetings, we had GoToMeeting, we had WebEx meetings, and there were several other things. And all of them had different ways to mute. And so it was trying to find the mute button on all of these disparate programs was was always a challenge. It still really is. So without shush, if I am put Skype or whatever in the background, and then I want to mute all of a sudden, I have to command tab to it, find the mute button and hit it. With shush, I just hit my shush hotkey and it mutes me. Another nice feature of shush is if I hit the hotkey twice, it'll go from push to talk to push to silence. Or it'll flip back and forth between those those two states. So it's a really slick app. They haven't done an update to it in a long time. And one of the reasons why I'm doing so much Swift programming is I'm trying to see if we can come up with something better. But for now, Shush is is a really nice program. Those are my four or five always running applications on my Mac that make my life a whole lot simpler. I wanted to build on the podcast software with something that I use whenever I'm doing stuff. There's a tool called, uh, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I couldn't find it on their website, Descript. And what it does is it transcribes an audio file into text, and it does a reasonable job. It's not super important for it to be really accurate. But what it then does is it associates that text with it's equivalent in the actual audio timeline. So, you know, we heavily edit this podcast to make sure it sounds as good as possible. And it's kind of neat because I use it, first of all, as I'm going through the episode, I highlight things that I think are interesting that we've said and just highlight them like I would in a book because it's got the text there. If I think there's a new topic, I mark it as a potential topic and I can write notes on that as I go through. And, you know, that's just the basic, like, structuring in the episode. But I can also, if I think something that we said shouldn't be in the episode, I can just highlight it and hit delete, and it deletes the audio. And it's non-destructive as well, so I can actually go in and I can drag kind of from the left side of it and go back even further or bring it back out again. Same with the right side. So I can tweak it even after I've deleted it. I can cut and paste So I can take a bit of audio and I can cut it from somewhere and insert it to a previous spot in the episode or a later spot in the episode. I can really rearrange stuff pretty liberally using this tool. So, you know, it does transcription. The transcription is good. You can pay for like a perfect transcription, basically. Transcription is really good. And it lets me deal with the audio using text rather than looking at, at waveforms. Is there any other podcast software you use or slightly related to podcast? (laughs) Okay, so one of the other things that happens, so I'm actually in the Bahamas right now, where I grew up, the country where I grew up, in a cottage on a very remote little town called Spanish Wells, which is where my my grandma's side of the family, back to the 18th century, has lived. 
in a cottage that I, I spent a ton of my childhood growing up in. And I mean, I'm on video now with you guys. You can see that I have a reasonably good connection, but I'm still a few thousand miles away from you on a remote island. It's only partial potato quality. Yeah, it's pretty good. I can see you guys really good. So I'm assuming that, it, that it's got to go both ways. But one of the things that, that I worry about when I'm recording the podcast, it's important that we hear each other. I'm pretty worried that, number one, my backup software is going to decide that it needs to start backing things up, which has happened more times than I want to say during meetings. Where, like, you know, I can't hear people. They're, they've got robot voice. And I'm like, what's happening? But just the backup software, other little things that decide to start processing a ton of information in the background. So there's a tool called Trip Mode. And I can actually go in and, and specifically whitelist applications that I want to have internet access. And everything else gets basically blocked from doing anything over the network. So it means that I, I end up with this kind of really clean network connection when I'm on meetings. I use it a lot. Whenever we do the podcast, I have it turned on. I have it turned on right now. And it really makes it so that I have a, a really reliable internet connection. If I'm on my cell phone, like if I'm tethered, it's a lifesaver. Like it's unusable otherwise. Yeah, I was just going to say that. When I'm, when I'm on my tethered connection, I only have so much data a month. So I don't want Dropbox to go. I don't want Discord to go. I don't want any of those things churning in the background. So I only have like five or six things go if I'm tethered. And the cool thing is, is that trip mode detects if you're on Wi-Fi and it'll kick off. And then if you're tethered, it'll kick on. And then you can always enable it for sure. I think it remembers for each network that you're on. So like if you had it turned on in one network and then you switch it to another network and then you turn it off, it'll remember your last state. Yeah, exactly. So I've got it running right now for the podcast as well. But when I work in the car, when I have to travel to Omaha or whatever in the afternoons, it'll kick on when I'm on tethered and you know all those background tasks won't run. It's definitely a data saver. Well, I think we could probably talk for several more hours about tools that we love. Before I close this out, is there any other ones that you think we have to bring up? Yeah, there's a couple things that I want to touch on. So like I was saying, I'm, I'm in the Bahamas. My wife and I both work remotely, and we are working from here for a month from a few different places. So it means I don't have my big multi-screen setup that I normally have uh, the office that I work out of. So one of the things that, that has led to is I've been using the touch bar on my Mac a lot more than I would have normally because it's usually up on an armature on my desk. And I found this tool called Better Touch Tool. It can do a ton of stuff. I have it set up right now to show my last five used applications. So it's just a task switcher, but I don't have to press Command Tab. I can just look at it. I can see that I'm going to switch to these five different apps. I can even scroll through them if I want. So I can go further than that five if I need to. But that's just how wide I have it. I have one that pastes my email address. Like I have a specific key for it. It's just a tiny little at sign. I have my pasteboard manager running from here now, which is super great. And then I actually, one of the reasons that I got started looking for this tool in the first place is I use a few different websites that have a really bad two-factor authentication implementation to where they don't let you paste. So I use 1Password. That is an amazing system where it pastes your password and then it copies your two-factor authentication to the clipboard. You can just paste it in. There's a bunch of sites that for whatever reason either have very flaky or bad paste support in the two-factor authentication. So I have a, a little widget on my touch bar now that shows my current clipboard, like whatever is currently selected. And then I actually made it so that when you touch it, it sends the clipboard using keystrokes. So the sites that don't support paste, I have this button on my keyboard that types in the clipboard contents. So the other stuff's great, but I really use it for that. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know it could do that. Oh, my word. That is insane. I knew there was so much you could do with Better Touch Tool. Yeah, this is just the touch bar. Like It has all sorts of other support. So what are you going to do when you get back home and your computer's up on an armature? At this point, I'm thinking like maybe I just stop using my other monitors, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing because it's not just the touch bar, right? It integrates with keyboard shortcuts and keystrokes combinations and mice commands and stuff like that. So kind of the system that I have here, I can still see my touch bar. So that's kind of cool. But it integrates in, in a bunch of different ways with different input devices. 
And it's like $7. It's some dumb low amount of money. For the email address thing, I just use text replacement. This is even faster. I don't know. Well, I know, but I, I've got one. And so with Mac OS and iOS, my text replacements are shared across devices. I've got B at RDF, and that expands to my email address at my custom domain. I've got several of those that it's like, I don't want to type that out all the time. <laughs> so text replacement, but man, better touch tool. Some of that sounds insanely useful. Yeah, I really, really like it. I'm going to be spending some money, guys. You should. So you should support software. I know. I agree. Look, I have, a, I have a line item in my budget, in our family budget, that's work software. And it's kind of like, I, I feel pretty comfortable kind of just spending whatever for that category. I almost always get it back in terms of save time or not making mistakes, right? I think it's really worth spending money on software. The point is, if you really, if you don't spend money on the software that actually makes a difference in your life, it'll go away eventually. And it might, it'll probably go away anyway, but this at least prolongs it. <laughs> like everything from Google has. <laughs> I swear, everything I get. <laughs> Invite me to Google Wave, Paul. Oh, gosh, that's a thing. <laughs> oh, my word. Is it still a thing? No. <laughs> okay. I remember Google Wave. Yeah. No, even Google Apps now. I have Google Apps, and then I also have a Google speaker, you know, Google Home, and they don't integrate. If you're in a Google Apps account and you're like, hey, Google, make a appointment on my calendar, it'll tell you like, oh, I can't do that right now because, you know, Google Apps. Sorry, I don't know how to help with that yet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully you guys found this as helpful as I found this. Hopefully our listeners found this as helpful as I found this. Like I said, there's going to be some software that I'm buying Thanks for all of your suggestions, guys. We'll have links to all these in the show notes. There's always more apps out there than we're ever going to have time for in a podcast episode. We've got an entire list here that we weren't even able to cover just because of time constraints. So maybe we'll do a second episode later in the year. I don't know. I got lots more. Yeah. <laughs> Neil is an app resource. So yeah, thank you for everything. And until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We got a good thing.